Hello and welcome to Downton Gabby, Life After Downton. Today we're going to be talking about a whole bunch of stuff. Some summer TV, we're going to touch base with Sense8 and Handmaid's Tale, and of course, the amazing Wonder Woman. I'm Shannon in Oakland. I'm Brandy in Los Angeles. And I'm Teresa in Brooklyn. So first off, let's touch base about some of the shows that we've loved. Um, I know there's a very exciting new midwife that's going to be on Call the Midwife next season. Brandy's finally getting her wish, a non-white midwife. <laughs> right? We've been asking for this for seasons. They've got some departing cast members, and then the new casting is a nurse from the West Indies, right? So Leonie Elliott, apparently she's been on Black Mirror before. I, have, I haven't seen her in anything. but um, And, you know, finally, I mean, I wish it was multiple people, but at least, at least we're going to have one not-white character on the show. But now who's leaving the show? A bunch of people are leaving the show. I guess uh, Patsy and Delia are going to, like, run away together. And then also... Um, Sister Mary Cynthia is leaving. Oh, really? Mm. I kind of yeah. saw that coming. I know. I just kind of wanted to see that resolved in a way that she could be strong again. I mean, I feel like they really beat her down. You know, I was holding out hope for her because several episodes ago, there's some flash forward with Jenny. And um, she actually references how she and Cynthia or Sister Mary Cynthia stayed friends into old age. So I kept thinking, oh, good. She's not going to kill herself. She's like, nothing horrible is going to happen because we already know that like she and Jenny have aged together and stayed friends. But kind of see the the writing on the wall for her in terms of her narrative, which is kind of done, I think. It's just crazy. There's only a few of the original cast that are still on the show of Trixie, Sister Julianne, and Sister Monica Joan. And everyone else has just kind of been filtering in and out. Yeah. Well, and Sheila and the doctor have been there. Since oh, that's the true. Too. That's true. That's true. I, I think, and we talked about this in the last episode, but I think that they do such a good job of world building that characters can come in and out. And um, it, it feels like it's the same show in the same place. It's just new people there, which is really hard to do. And I kind of admire the fact that they've been able to do it pretty deftly. But I'm a little pissed off that we're we're gaining a woman of color and we're losing the lesbian couple. Right. So, like, <laughs> like what is zero sum representation going on? It's, it's just frustrating. And also, I mean, I do appreciate that the creators do a lot of historical research and are like the thalidomide storyline. They also, they're going to be looking at leprosy and Huntington's Korea. And I'm very excited about this. Tocophobia. Do you guys know what tocophobia is? No. That's a fear of being pregnant. Wow. So that's a really interesting thing. And um, I, it would be really nice if there was someone on the show who didn't love babies and didn't want to have kids, but I don't think that's possible in their universe. Well, no, they killed her off in the finale. So <laughs> <laughs> she didn't want to have a baby and she died of birth control. That's right. She died of birth control. You're right. Which really wasn't the most positive storyline. That that was really shitty. It was a really poorly handled storyline. Like, I was a little shocked at how poorly handled it was. Okay, so, well, that show keeps ticking, and another one that I still love got canceled. I'm, I'm pretty devastated that Sense8 is canceled after season two, which I thought was... Um, had still had pretty much all its same problems from season one, but all its same awesomeness too, and really seemed like it was picking up a lot of momentum in ongoing storylines. But at least now I know forever I never have to see Wolfgang die because he's still alive <laughs> in the cliffhanger. <laughs> and he will always be alive in my mind, even though it seemed like they were definitely going to kill him. So, um... You know, tell us a little bit about, like, I think I got lost in the Christmas special of, like, the cluster and the conspiracy and all this. Does that become more clear through season two? Is that very satisfying? When we talked about season one, we talked about the opportunity of introducing more clusters. And they, they do that this time, but in a, in a kind of dissatisfying way. Because you keep seeing them come across more sensates. And you learn that there's really, like, an underground network of like many sensates in the world and that this cluster is only starting to maybe be accepted into that. Like they don't, they don't know anybody yet. They're new at school. Mm. <laughs> and so 
you, they there's a couple other characters that they start to like get introduced into that world uh, through them, but then there's also still all the stuff about like whispers and that. So you learn a lot more about the evil people as well and like what their organization started out as and how it's morphed into this thing where they want to like take out the sensates. I don't. There's a lot of details given, and in the end, you're just kind of like, okay, so bad guys bad, and we don't want them to find us. Right. You, know? like you just kind of like have to go back to that because the details are not uh, necessarily completely cohesive. Um, in the same way that in a lot of the very cool sequences where they're in each other's lives and spaces, the like physical rules of what being a sensate is seem to be... Uh, a bit malleable depending on what we need to have happen in the scene. Mm -hmm. The best thing about season two is probably that Sun is basically the main character. Ah, she's oh. great. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's still a lot of stuff with Will and Riley because Will's the one that's like mentally connected to Whispers, and so he's the core for that whole storyline. But the main like emotional storyline where they're all like having a band together to to do something is help Sun get out of prison and get revenge on her brother. Which is all very, very, very satisfying. And there's a hot detective that she makes out with. <laughs> so you guys should really stick around for that. <laughs> okay, maybe. It's, it's, I'll put it on the list. I just couldn't get through all the orgy scenes. And I just couldn't... I mean, this show is just so funny to me. Because it's like, they're literally having orgy scenes in like all these different countries in the world. So they had to film this so many different times. <laughs> and there's some guy holding a boom mic over this. <laughs> and they're having to, like, act so serious. And it's just like, what is going on in this show? There's no more orgies after the Christmas special. That's okay, it. well, there was, like, that's five orgies in the Christmas special. So <laughs> I got a little orgied out. I mean, I didn't know I could, but I definitely was like, that's enough. Anyway, um, it is it is done now. I don't know. I hope that maybe they'll get, like, another special to wrap up some threads. It is unfortunate when a show just kind of stops. But right. I don't know what their next project is. I know that Lily Wachowski was basically not involved in the production of season two for, I think, personal reasons. So I don't know. I don't know if they've announced their next project yet or not. But, you know, I'm, I'm always there for them. It, it's it's very hit or miss, though. Like, you can, get, you can get a sensate that I love or you can get a Jupiter Ascending where I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> hey, I recently yeah, so. watched uh, Cloud Atlas start to finish that's a thing they made too that's a thing they made <laughs> well I, you know it was i thought it was pretty good i mean that's a hard book yeah. to to film they are nothing if not ambitious women they are they're really ambitious well sorry brandy that your orgy show you got canceled <laughs> thank you for your kind words in my time of need Still one of my favorite scenes is from season one where they're listening to the symphony and they're all imagining their own births. I mean, just how much <laughs> acid did they have to take to come up with some of this stuff? And it's just pretty funny that like Nomi in San Francisco, they just literally have to mention every San Francisco thing so you know they're in San Francisco. Ooh, that's from Tartine. Mission Chinese. I work at City Lights Bookstore. It's like, yeah, okay, people can just like know you're in San Francisco. Now this is the real reason why you can't watch Sensei. You're just annoyed about their depiction <laughs> of the Bay Area. Yeah. <laughs> so our final bit of follow-up, um, we want to circle back to The Handmaid's Tale, which we discussed on our last episode. Um, Teresa, you recently went to a panel with Reed Morano, right? I did. It wasn't a panel. It was basically Reed Morano being interviewed. Um, and a whole bunch of us lucky people got to sit in the audience and listen to her talk about directing the first three episodes of Handmaid's Tale. And for those of you who don't know Reed Morano, she's done a lot of work as a cinematographer and has um, also done some directing. She's done a movie called Meadowland and she's done some TV and and now these first three episodes of Handmaid's Tale. She was so interesting because she really set the tone for the whole series. So the way it looks, the way it sounds, the kind of music that's being used, the way the actors are embodying their characters, the way the flashbacks look as opposed to what the modern day Gilead looks like. It's like so much 
precise detail. And she said that uh, she she saw the script for the pilot and was really interested in it. But she was told, yeah, forget about that. It's already been sent out to famous male director. That's what she was told. Famous male director. Of course, the first person you would think of doing The Handmaid's Tale is unnamed famous male director. Uh, And she's like, oh, that's too bad because I would love to do this. I love this book. I know exactly how I would do it. Anyway, she does eventually get asked to submit sort of her lookbook, her proposal for doing it for a meeting. And she did what sounds like the most detailed lookbook ever created, which basically means that she went into detail for every single aspect of the production. And she had all these quotes from The Handmaid's Tale and images to go with them. And I mean, anyway, but a, a few like interesting points, like she was talking about how she really developed the characters with the actors and she wanted to look at all of them as having a lot of humanity and nobody was totally good and nobody was totally evil and really nobody was totally happy or comfortable with what was going on which made them more interesting but she was talking about working with ann dowd who plays aunt lydia Mm -hmm. and uh who she said is about the most opposite to aunt lydia any human being could possibly be (laughs) but she was talking about finding her humanity and you know does does Aunt Lydia have some secret from her own past that she's really ashamed about? Is she trying to help the handmaids? Like there's this idea that she's there really to help the handmaids succeed because in this world, you don't have a lot of options and she's doing what she can to train them to succeed. Well, and I think that's what the book shows. There are these tiny moments of humanity of her where she's like, I'm just trying to prepare you. Right. And so I think... I sense that more in the book than in the show, actually. Yeah, the idea of of preparing them. So every single shock to the system is going to happen during their training at the Red Center rather than, Mm -hmm. quote unquote, on the job. So they'll be ready. So that was one thing. The other thing she said was Joseph Fiennes, who plays the commander, they were blocking out the first uh, ceremony scene. (laughs) 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 And, And and. Joseph Fine says to her, um, you know, this, this really, this can't be in any way sexy. And <laughs> she said, no, yeah. it's really not going to be sexy. <laughs> like, there's <laughs> nothing about this that's going to be sexy. It's just going to be as awkward and uncomfortable as possible. So the, the idea that there was even some conversation of, like, concern that it was going to be <laughs> in some way... <laughs> Sexualized. It's going to be okay, Joe. We've it's going to be okay, yeah. Um, and then a couple of choices. There was one thing she talked about, a music choice. At the end of episode two, uh, Alfred is feeling really good, and she walks out. I think she's been confined to her room for a long time, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And she walks out to meet Avglen to do their shopping. And she's really feeling good. And the song is Don't You Forget About Me that's mm-hmm. playing. So I guess there was some conversation about bringing in modern music and why would you use that? You know, Uh, Reed Murano is saying, you know what? Um, June is like, like us, like she grew up watching the breakfast club. She's got that Mm -hmm. song in her head when she feels good. That's the song in her head. (laughs) And she walks out and then right after the line, will you recognize me? That's when off Glenn turns to her and you see it's a different person. And the music mm-hmm. cuts out silent for a while. And I thought that was really so interesting. Like these things are never arbitrary, you know, they're like thought through really deeply. And the idea that because a lot of this is happening through off Alfred's experience, that the music is also of her experience. I actually got that sense from it as well. And I, I really have loved the injection of modern music in it. And I think it's been really well thought out. Yeah, I think it's just great. It's like the music she's hearing in her head. And it made me look at the show a little differently uh, because, you know, the the big departure in the series is that you get everyone's backstories and you get other people's point of view, although it's always primarily Alfred or June. But thinking about the whole show as kind of happening in her head, just like, you know, the, in the book, it's all through her point of view. And then making all of the... Uh, creative choices around that I thought was really, really cool. I could go on for a long time. It was really interesting listening to her talk. 
Do we know what her next project is at all? She is working on, she's directing, well, she directed the, uh, the pilot of Divorce, by the way, which I didn't know. And she huh. directed a bunch of episodes of Vinyl. Um, so she's done other TV, <laughs> you know. Two, two things that didn't go over very well. Right, right. <laughs> well, get that HBO money, girl, though. Get it. I know. <laughs> it I know. Out. Get it. I mean, seriously. <laughs> Um, she's directing a film called I Think We're Alone Now, which is in post. Um, okay. And I don't know. Another 80s song reference, right? <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> That's true. It's with Peter Dinklage and Elle Fanning, interestingly. Huh. Um, so I don't know anything else about it. And then she's in pre-production for something that doesn't have a title yet. So I think that her directing career has taken off full force, which is awesome. Well, I love that she's with HBO because actually Margaret Atwood's um, Mad Adam series, which I'm a huge fan of, Oryx and Crake, is probably my favorite book ever. Um, oh, wait, that's probably Gone with the Wind. Second favorite book ever. <laughs> but the whole <laughs> Mad Adam series has been in development at HBO, and I did hear it is still in development, so it has not died. So that would be a very cool project for her uh, to take on next. Oh, let's, yeah, let's suggest it. She did talk a little bit about TV versus movies. And one thing she said, uh, she's kind of a movie director at heart. But one thing she said was she knows that more people saw Handmaid's Tale than have seen any of her other work, you know, because of the reach of television. I wonder if Hulu tells her what the real numbers are, though, right? Like these streaming services with their mystery. It is a mystery. I, I also wanted to ask her what how she felt about you know stuff being being doled out week by week at, like traditionally or getting it all at once like would she have wanted handmaid's tale to get dumped at once they did do the first three episodes at once and i think people found very quickly that they just couldn't binge it so yep <laughs> yeah i think it's been a very smart decision even though it you know it is difficult to watch i am looking forward to it i i I just don't think there's anything as complex and layered as this story right now on TV. So I feel very drawn to keep going back to it. It's really good. And oh, there was one other interesting point. June's job in the past, in her past life uh, is, is a little vague. Like it's not really specified what she did. Reed Morano and Elizabeth Moss discussed this and decided that they really wanted her to have a job, a specific job. And they gave her the job of book editor because of the irony of being a book editor and then not being allowed to read. Why things like playing Scrabble or seeing books is even more heightened because of her past career. Well, and I think the, the counterpoint to that is Serena Joy, the commander's wife. And they really, uh, so Brandy in an upcoming episode, it's her backstory. Um, and I liked how they told it. And uh, there's the ambassador from Mexico there, and she goes, "Was this how you imagined it, this world to go, that you wrote this book and now no women can read it? And it just yeah. hits at home. And uh, something I really love about the last few episodes is you really start to see her resistance and her, you know, it, we always loved that her character was, she built this movement and now it's biting her in the ass. Mm -hmm. But there's these little moments where she rebels against her place. And I love that. Maybe my favorite line from the book is how angry she must be to be taken at her word, to have been taken mm -hmm. at her word. As Shannon kind of alluded to there, I have not continued on watching it, not because it wasn't brilliant. Well, I tried, you know, we discussed the first three episodes. I tried to watch episode four. I got about halfway through and I was like, I just can't do this. Like, mm -hmm. it's, it's just too hard. So I will try. I will keep trying in maybe like 20 minute increments because <laughs> I want to be experiencing this and I think it's really important. And um, particularly, I just really like the work of all of the women involved with the show. So I want to be seeing them make that work. But God, it's hard. It's a rough one. It's hard. On a, on a more humorous note, the episode with the doctor when she goes to see the gynecologist Oh my god, it's Donnie from Orphan yes. Black. I, I literally yelled out. I was like, Donnie! What are you doing? <laughs> I know, in your best... In my best Allison voice. <laughs> yeah. Donnie, get out of here! So, yeah, it was hilarious to see, like, Christian Bruton's face, like, peeking around the curtain. <laughs> it made me really happy. Yeah, well, I think the um, last three episodes especially 
they do a really good job of, you know, because you're thrust into this world. Everything's already happened. She's a handmaid. She has flashbacks to her life, but you don't really know, like, how the how this new world was built. But they, in the last three episodes, they do a really good job of kind of from the inside of the men who run Gilead, but then also the the outside of the people trying to figure out what the hell is going on. Like, there's this great scene where Luke ends up with these different people, and they're what they know of the Red Centers, and the vagueness of which they talk about it mm-hmm. is so brilliant that, yes you wouldn't really understand what's happening. Right. And this idea that the the most valuable commodity in the world at this point is fertile women. And it's really interesting that they're taking so long to really, because you're like, yeah, it's fucked up. She's a handmaid. It's fucked up doing the ceremony. But to really understand that fertility is the most prized possession anywhere in the world right now, it makes you understand why they built this system to imprison and enslave these fertile women. I feel like you could have built this system without imprisoning and enslaving people, but hey, (laughs) (laughs) that's just me. No, it's built by men. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah. So I did really love the last episode, which is, you know, one of our favorite parts of the book, which is where the commander takes Alfred to Jezebel's. uh, So you get to see, you know, the underground sex network of these supposedly pious men that no matter what, there will always be men buying women. Well, they don't have to pay for it anymore. They're just using women's bodies. And even though they'll talk about they want women to be these saints, they really just also want sluts. And so, but it's so well done that the commander is giving her this great gift that she gets to go have a fun night out. And it's really, she just gets to see women enslaved in a different way. And it's horrifying. (laughs) And it's just like from the, it's just, it's the male gaze. Oh, and they actually have to have like real non-ceremony sex, which I think mm-hmm. uh, just creeps her out even more. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. That, that to me was in some ways the most disturbing, like, ooh, now she has to have sex with him, like real sex and like pretend that it's good and oh. Yep. she's She is a sex slave, even though it's built, you know, and shrouded in this religious, you know, purity. It's not. He owns her and can do whatever he wants to her, you know, and just the the hypocrisy of these religious men, um, which we could just say are Republicans. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Yeah, But I just think it's great that Margaret Atwood went there. She's Mm -hmm. like, yeah, you could build this whole system around all these values. But you know what? Men are still going to want this and they're going to they're going to find a way to condone it within their rules mm-hmm. because they create the rules and they can bend them the way they want. But women right. have to play the roles that they ascribe to them. I think the last three episodes are doing a really good job of getting backstories of different people and shifting perspective. It's not so much in Offred's head. It's in other people's heads, too. So very, very cool. All right. Let's get to the main event, which is Wonder Woman. What do you think? How much did you love it? How much do you want to own a shield? So I saw it um, as we're recording this last night, Friday night, 8 p.m. in the Dome at the Arclight Hollywood, which is a great way to see an opening night movie. Full house. Everyone was so excited. But there was like, people weren't that rowdy because there was like an edgy like anticipation. Like people were so into it. The moment everybody kind of let loose was in that first big Amazon fight. Fucking Robin Wright leaps up on that shield and yeah. she's got the three arrows at once. The whole theater bursts into applause. <laughs> like, and that, that is what Wonder Woman felt like. Anticipation that you could barely contain and then just involuntary joy applause. <laughs> Your audience was much rowdier than our audience. Our audience was like really sort of polite. Like you could tell people really liked it, but... But it was a pretty polite audience. They didn't even laugh as much as I expected. I think the audience was just kind of like into it and just paying attention to every syllable. And I don't know, it was really, it was really interesting. Um, I saw it at an Alamo Draft House show in Brooklyn. No, not an all woman one, because we know that there are so many men that are rushing to see this. Um, we need to give them space. And um, yeah, so it was a really appreciative audience, but not a 
uh, vocal rowdy audience. Now, as I'm saying this, I realize that Alamo Draft House kicks people out for being too noisy. So, <laughs> well, I was at an Alamo Draft House and people were pretty rowdy. So, definitely laughing really loud. There were some whoops, you know, things like that. Yeah, we had such a subdued audience in comparison. I'd like to see it again, though. I was nervous, you know, about it. I wanted it to be good. And so I was I was watching it with like a bit of nervousness. But there were moments where I was really kind of overwhelmed, like emotionally overwhelmed. Me too. I cried several times of just, you know, how amazing it was to see not just one woman, but multiple women being badasses. Yeah, and, you know, mm -hmm. it's still such a rare thing that it's very overwhelming. <laughs> um, yeah. I hope someday that it's passe, but it for now it's, you know, how many years ago was it that the Hunger Games came out? Mm -hmm. And it was also really great to see like, okay, I love the Hunger Games, but a bow and arrow, yours really far away from your target. And I loved the hand to hand combat that we saw women like punching and knocking down men was like really satisfying <laughs> because you don't often see women fight that closely. Mm -hmm. They're usually like a gun or an arrow or they're very far away. Those images matter so much. Like the message I got from a friend who saw it before I did and she, she said, see it and weep quietly throughout the entirety of the first third of the film at the beauty that is a selection of set pieces created not under a male gaze. <laughs> it's like, yeah, <laughs> pretty much. I think a lot of it is that way, though. I think the, that much of the film is created not under a male gaze. You know, I think. I think what, one of the first things I said when I walked out, I was like, she was so sexy, but there was not a single cleavage shot in the whole movie. Mm -hmm. Like, that is amazing. No gratuitous cleavage. No, seriously. And I walked out telling Sean, this better be your new female crush because she is so hot. <laughs> but yeah no it's like she's covered up I mean the costuming and the hair I mean the braids on these Amazons I was so impressed but the costuming was like so sexy but so strong it's like you compare mm -hmm. that to like the horrible Holly Berry uh you know Catwoman costume oh, and it's like no you can have a woman have a functional sexy costume that's not like you know nip slips threatening to come out at any moment <laughs> We saw uh, before the film started, because it's Alamo Drafthouse, we saw a whole selection of early Wonder Woman stuff. Yeah, it was cool. Pilots mm -hmm. from shows that never happened and things like that. I mean, it was just sort of amazing. There was one Wonder Woman whose boobs were basically just falling out of her uh, outfit. <laughs> yep. Like, it's, it's sort of interesting because, and I don't remember who said this, but the idea that you know, these women are raised on this island with no men and no patriarchal beauty standards. <laughs> but they still shave under their arms, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's unrealistic. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. really would have liked her, Diana Prince, to lift her arm and just see a nice big uh, tuft <laughs> of hair under there. I guess we're not there quite yet. I think also this was just such a smart way to do Wonder Woman finally with the period piece. Really the World War One backdrop was so perfect for her to be kind of introduced to the highs and lows of humanity. I don't know. I just thought it, it was a really, really well done script beyond just the characters and the, and the, everything about the movie was really well done. I, when I looked up the running time afterwards, I was like, that was two hours and 21 minutes. Like, it felt wow. so quick to me. It did. I could have I easily had another half an hour to delve more into, like, the cool side characters and the, the female villain. We don't get enough time with her, I thought. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I, I would have liked it to be longer. Like, this could have been three hours and I would have been pleased. Yeah, I was really sad when I realized that this was all we were going to get of that, you know, band of uh, spies that we're going to jump into the future now or the present and uh, we weren't going to be with them anymore. I mean, I know since Wonder Woman's already been introduced in the other DC movies, like that's not a, a huge surprise, but I feel like they could still, Wonder Woman 2 doesn't have to immediately be in the year 2018 or whatever. Like, yeah, it doesn't have I, to. I, I think a stopover in 1960s women's lib is, would be really great. <laughs> well, you know, just, just, Jumping off of that, I, I think that the movie was like really full of very sly commentary on 
patriarchy and on how women are supposed to act and supposed mm -hmm. to be. And, you know, they take advantage of this sort of earnest, naive thing that Diana Prince has, having been mm -hmm. having grown up in a very different culture, even just when she's trying on dresses. Great montage. Like you see the clothing through her eyes because you see this whole movie through her eyes and, and all of this discovery through her eyes. And she's like, <laughs> why would anybody want to wear this? Like, you can't, you can't fight in this and looking at the corsets and saying, is this modern armor? You know, and things like that. Talking about sex, like she knows all about sex. That's a really great line that men are necessary for reproduction, but not for pleasure. <laughs> yeah, that got some big chuckles in yeah, the audience for I got sure. Some big chuckles. And it was like lines like that that I was like, oh, it would have been really fun to see in an all female audience. You just, the hoots and hollers would have just been really, really good. <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of things, you know, she walks into the, uh, the all male meeting without thinking twice about it, because why should she, right? There's people, yeah. and she's a person, and they're discussing this. Like, all of these things that she does just because, well, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you say that? What does being female have to do with what you can and can't do? Like, just, uh, yeah. and that, that's throughout the, throughout the film and how she encounters these things. And, and I was trying to think of, like, what would it be in real life? Like, what would happen to her? And I think she would be put in jail almost immediately. Yeah. You yeah. know, <laughs> like she just would not, she wouldn't have gotten 10 feet without being arrested for something. Right. And I, I would say my only complaint of the movie is how many times Steve tells her no or like physically stops her or covers her up. It's a lot. I mean, I understand that he's trying to, you know, you know, embody those patriarchal norms, but it was like after a while, it was kind of like, I just want you to stop telling her no and physically stopping her and covering her up. But she doesn't really care. Like, she's like, all right, let's see what happens. You know, like she's sort of, she doesn't really get angry. She just, she's just going through the world, picking her moments and doing exactly what she thinks she should do. So even if she's being told no 10 times, it doesn't seem to affect her determination to, you know, do what she feels needs to be done. Yeah, I agree. That's why, I think that's why it was set up like that. And it, it didn't bother me. Um, I mean, if anything, Steve is uh, abnormally <laughs> tolerant for a man of his <laughs> time, right? Right. So, I mean, what what a dreamboat Chris he, Pine is. Oh, I love, <laughs> can we just have a little Chris Pine appreciation moment? Perfect casting. I love him in his totality. I just love Chris Pine. I I think he's wonderful, and I think he's so able to make fun of himself and he's able to play a role like Steve Trevor, which, you know, you're, you're the second banana. It's kind of like, you know, when we talked about Mad Max, the new Mad Max movie, where really Firosa is the lead. And right. Mad Max is, is really helping her and doing really good stuff. But he's not the engine, you know, that's driving this, to use a metaphor for the film. <laughs> um, so, and I think that in this role too, as Steve Trevor, like he's, he's great. He's got a really full bodied role. He's got, um, a great character. He gets to do a lot of stuff, but mm -hmm. it's still her movie. And Melissa Silverstein was writing in women in Hollywood about this saying, like, if anybody wants, uh, instructions on how to write a female character who is, you know, like the secondary character, just look at Steve Trevor. Like that's how you write yeah. her. <laughs> that's exactly how you how you write her. Yeah, very good point. Our audience burst out laughing just when she referred to him in by his full name, Steve Trevor. <laughs> it was just like oh, so funny. Yeah, I was thinking about that, and I also I was thinking about like how Chris Hemsworth played in Ghostbusters, and I was like, we really need more of these dudes to to feel like they can they can take on that kind of role and still be a leading man. You know, he's still going to go be Captain Kirk after this. It's fine. But even Steve Trevor is a really heroic character. Um, oh yeah. Who doesn't want to play like the fighter pilot who, you know, stops the evil guys. Yeah. Who gets together his band of brothers. You know, I, I did, I did want to see more of his secretary, but you know, she was so good. <laughs> I want to see more of all of them. Yeah. I, I mean, his whole band of misfits, like we didn't, I didn't think we got enough of their backstories. I would love to know more about that, all of them. So should we talk about the 
really weird media shit that Patty Jenkins has been wading through. Oh my God. They never learn. Like how many times has the Hollywood reporter tweeted some nonsense and everyone gets mad and then they just do it again, you know? They're like, oh, they're really taking a chance on her. And it's like, no. Did you say the same thing about Colin Trevorrow when he got Jurassic World? I don't think so. Yeah, seriously. That was a bigger jump than her getting this film. Her last movie won Charlie Theron an Oscar, and the real scandal is that it's taken her so long to get studio money again. That's the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, on Twitter, there was uh, a lot of people responded to that. You know, the gamble that the studio was taking since her last film had been a, an indie. And a lot of people were tweeting names of male directors who went from indie or cool music video, you know, to... Or a commercial. No, she she did such a good job directing it. I mean, I, I don't even like these superhero films. I've kind of stopped watching them. But I love the directing. I like the kind of 300-esque, you know, fight scenes and... You know, she brought the humanity, but she also brought the badassness. It was great. Maybe a little, a little more slow mo than I love. <laughs> uh, people, people seem to be eating it up in my theater, and and it was really nice to see action scenes where you could tell what the fuck was going on. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the trailers that played before our screening was for you know Transformers Seventeen or whatever's coming out. You can't tell what's going on in those movies. <laughs> This one was so well choreographed. Yeah. I like the slow-mo, so I'm, I'm kind of into that. So. <laughs> it worked for me. And all the jumping on shields really worked for me. And I feel like I was a little worried that, like, I'm sorry, her stuff is kind of wacky. Like, this lasso of truth and these cuffs and, like, a shield. I was like, I don't know how this is going to go. But they made them really cool. I was like, okay. This actually isn't wacky. So you're not waiting for the introduction of the invisible jet. That's not what yeah. you're really wanting to get to. I I guess so. But they they put them, you know, Patty, Patty Jenkins really put it in, grounded it in truth, and so it worked. But I was a little like, oh, I don't know how this is gonna go. Yeah, I thought I was at legitimately turned on when Steve used the lasso on himself to prove that he was yeah doing the right thing. I was like. Oh, shit, that was hot. <laughs> so building off the good news that, you know, a woman got to make a superhero movie and it's amazing and it's going to make a shit ton of money. Um, we do have even know the next woman that's going to get to do uh, a superhero movie, which is Gina Prince-Bythewood doing Silver and Black, which is a Spider-Man spinoff. Amazing. And then, of course, um, Ryan Coogler is doing Black Panther, so it's it's nice that we have a couple more non-white guys coming up in the mix for these amazing, <laughs> extremely lucrative directing jobs. Yeah, I mean, it's about, it's about time, right? And yeah. the other, I think, good news for the comic book movie multiverse is that DC came out with a good superhero movie after I think a bunch of pretty bad superhero movies. There was just palpable relief about that, right? Like, uh, like yeah. so many critics were just like, oh, thank God, like, finally someone yeah. has shown that you can you can do this in a fun manner, and it does not just be Batman crying for three hours. I, I mean, DC is so fucking dark. It's this so humorless. And when Batman versus Superman came out and Wonder Woman was part of it, I remember at the time people saying, oh, Wonder Woman was really good in this movie. So hopefully yeah. <laughs> she's the only good thing about this movie. So hopefully it'll be better. And then I saw the trailer for Justice League, um, which, it, you know, includes Aquaman and the rest. And um, it looked, it had some funny lines. So. Can, you say, can you say Aquaman again? Aquaman. That's how we say it in Canada. Aquaman. <laughs> I was just speaking about your Canadian accent. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, and that's going to be Jason Momoa, and he's going to be so fine. Like, it's be... <laughs> so fine. Yeah. So great to see Khal Drogo again. Whew. Bring it. I'm so glad they didn't cast some, like, willowy blonde guy as Aquaman. Like, no, he's a fucking king of the sea. Like, I want someone who looks like he can wrestle an octopus. Like, let's go. Yeah, that was in the trailer. I think that there was an audible sigh in the audience. <laughs> he shows up in the Aquaman trailer. Whew, that man.
I, I have high hopes. I really think maybe DC is getting its shit together because it would be really nice. Well, speaking of summer entertainment, let's just uh, do a quick rundown of what we're looking forward to on TV. I mean, because I don't know if there's another movie I even care about coming out this summer. But there are a lot of shows coming back in June and July. Well, The Beguiled is coming out this summer. And uh, Sofia Coppola just won the directing prize at Cannes. So um, I'm very excited about that. But yes, TV's where it's at this summer. I couldn't believe how many of our favorite shows are coming back this summer. Summer's become cool. Like, remember when there's nothing on during the Mm -hmm. summer? Just reruns. Nope, not anymore. Yep. So let's run down the list. Yeah, so um, from, for our favorites, like, I didn't even realize that this coming Friday is Orange is the New Black Friday on June 9th. I have still loved both, I loved both the last two seasons, which I think people had opposite complaints about. They thought season three was too light, season four was too dark. I liked them both, so <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing the conclusion of that cliffhanger. I believe season five is going to start immediately after season four because, of course, it ended with, you know, Daya holding a gun on one of the guards during the prison riot, so we shall see if that's how they go. Um, how are you guys feeling about Orange is the New Black? I'm done. Yeah, I thought the, mo- the most recent season I just didn't, didn't like at all. Um, I just felt we've talked about this. I just felt really hit over the head by their list of issues that they were dealing with. And I I don't know, I'm going to watch it. I'm going to watch it. But last season was definitely not my favorite season. Uh, Last season was one where I really started to feel like the binge quality was not serving the show anymore. Um, because you're right, like all the issues in a row of what they try to do about like, like it was very much Black Lives Matter and private prisons, like a whole, amongst all the other issues they already had going on. And that was great. Those are like extremely important issues. But when it's 13 episodes back to back and there's no time to breathe or like for public discussion about what they're doing, it it does become overwhelming. So I wish that it was more of a the Hulu one week at a time model for this show at this point. Well, we'll see how it goes. I don't know. Shannon's over it. <laughs> I feel like Shannon's been jettisoning shows left and right. Like you're just over it with so much stuff. Yeah, I I'm ready for the next wave of TV. I have this super serious, too much stuff going on. It's really overwhelming, and I've also been reading a lot more. Which I know we don't talk about books on this podcast, but I've been reading like a book every two weeks. So women are not allowed to read. Well, I'm going to hold on to it as long as I can. So, um, but yeah, so I just, you know, it's like, I'm really gravitating towards like stranger things and, you know, the lighter shows and these heavy ones from like the last couple of years. I mean, really handmade sales, the only heavy thing I'm watching. I don't know. I'm just not feeling it. I want, I want the lighter, just let me escape for a while type shows. And, I feel like they're in development right now. They're not out yet. So I'm waiting for those. Well, just going down the calendar. So after that, after Orange is New Black, we have Orphan Black the next day. I am really excited for the final season because I think they've done a tremendous job coming back from the sort of like sludge of storylines they had for a while and really getting to the core of just the the few clone stories we really care about. I, I feel confident it's going to end on a high. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling good about this one. And then here's your lighter fare, Shannon. Great British Baking Show on June 16th. Well, that's my favorite show. Really, really excited. It's the last season with the whole gang. So I probably will cry at the end just because, you know, what am I going to do with my life without the gang and the Great British Baking Show? But I will try to go on. Um, And then we've got Queen Sugar coming back on June 20th. I never finished season one, but I'm extremely happy that it's, you know, being successful and that they've hired another slate of women directors. And then two more faves, Playing House on June 23rd and Younger on June 28th. And those are perfect summer shows. Oh my god, I'm so excited about both of these. And this is exactly what I want right now. 
And, like, I, this is the perfect time for people to be writing rom-coms. Like, if we ever needed an escape and to believe in love again, <laughs> now is the time in a post-Trump world. So, like, Younger and Playing House are those kind of vibe. And so, bring it. I will love both I'm of sure Playing House will be hilarious, but I think it's also going to be a tearjerker this season because um, Jessica St. Clair had breast cancer in real life, which is one of the reasons it's taken so long for the show to come back. And although she's in remission now, like, they, they wrote it into the show. They went back and, and rewrote it so they could tell, like, the fictional version of their friendship with one of them having cancer. So I think it's going to be, I think there are going to be some tears there as well. Later in the summer, July 16th, Game of Thrones. Super excited. We're re-watching the last season. And then Sean just told me on The Ringer, the Mother of Dragons and the Maester are doing a podcast for each episode of every episode that's aired of Game of Thrones. So you can binge the whole show by listening to them talk about each episode, which I think is going to be really cool because they both are experts on the books. So I will be doing that too. By July 16th, in the next six weeks, you're going to listen to like 60 hours of podcasts. Well, I hope it's not an hour on each one, but we'll see. Yeah, I think, I don't, I don't remember, did we talk about the trailer on the podcast already and how it should really be Sansa instead of Jon Snow? Yes! <laughs> I yes. mean, come what on. What the hell is Jon Snow doing there? Let's put Sansa in, she's, she's the queen of the north. She's she the one with the- an actual, like, claim to the throne. What is he even doing there? Get out of here. Like, that's the cool yeah. thing, is like, now we've come down to this. And there's the three people who could make a legitimate claim for the Iron Throne are all women. Yep. Get out of here, Jon Snow. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> exactly. And that's why I tell people when they want to start watching it, you just have to get past all the tits in the first couple seasons to really get to the juicy feminist stuff. And the women are in power. Yep. The, the person who produces the trailers doesn't understand that, but maybe they'll listen to our podcast and get wise you don't need his face to make people tune into the next season of game of thrones they're tuning in you know yeah but he's i mean he's the daughter of uh of rhaegar targaryen and you just called him the daughter of rhaegar which was such an amazing Freudian slip that would be a great reveal <laughs> <laughs> spoiler Okay, let's not forget that Jon Snow is the son of Rhaegar Targaryen. So that does make him a bastard claimant. You're saying he does have a claim to the throne. He does have a claim to the throne. From two families. He doesn't have more of a claim than the women who actually have it through blood and marriage. No, he doesn't. He doesn't. But but it's not like he's just some guy that galloped in from nowhere. Get out of here. That's my, that's my just get get Jon Snow. Go hang out in the library with your friend. Let the ladies figure this out. And now actually this season, the show that got the slot following the, uh, the airing of Game of Thrones is Insecure. So Veep used to have that place. And now they're putting Insecure, which is a huge bump for That's Insecure. amazing. That's so great. And I'm so missing that show. So that's coming back at the same time in July. And I'm so excited. I feel like we just finished the last season and I loved it so much. So I'm really excited it's coming back so soon and that it got this prize spot right behind the the crown, their top show on HBO. Huge compliment. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then another lady comedy, uh, Broad City, finally coming back in August, August 23rd. If it feels like Insecure just went off the air, I feel like we haven't seen Broad City in a decade. It's been a long time. It can't have been that long ago, though, because, like, they had the Hillary Clinton episode and stuff last time. I think it's been, like, a year and a half, though. Well, they did tease in Entertainment Weekly that there's going to be some more seriousness this season, so. I don't know if I want that. (laughs) We'll see what that means in that wacky universe. No, thanks. I don't want anything serious. I just don't. Except Game of Thrones. Uh, Game of Thrones is, is not serious. I don't want serious things that are like commentary on our world right now. You know? Right. Like I'm getting yes. enough of that just in the real world. Like Game of Thrones is serious, but it's like high fantasy. So it's, it's like high whatever. fantasy. Yeah. Okay. So new shows that we might check out though. Um, Glow on Netflix on June 23rd. Alison Brie as a female wrestler in the 80s. Like. Sold amazing can't wait <laughs> just, 
just you had me at female wrestler. It could have been anything else. But then you see the leotards and you're like, oh, I'm in. Yeah, I am so in. I know what my Halloween costume's gonna be. <laughs> like, I'm ready. There's another show coming on Netflix called Friends from College, and it's basically kind of feels like the big chill or something. It's like a bunch of friends from college. Now they're all living in New York. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's, you know, secrets, but also <laughs> flirtations. Um, you know, Keegan-Michael Key's in it. Okay. Jason Bateman's in it. <laughs> yeah, I get um, sold. And Kobe Smulders is in it. Yeah, it's just like, yes, I will drink wine and watch this. I will watch anything with Keegan-Michael Key, so... Um, and I, I want to give a shout out to The Bold Type, which is going to come on Freeform. I'm really excited about this, and not just because my good friend and podcast listener, Lynn, writes for it. <laughs> um, <laughs> hey, Lynn! <laughs> it just looks really fun. Again, like that fun, female-driven romance, but work adventures as well. I'm hoping it's going to be like younger, like that kind of, hit that vibe. Yeah. Um, for, for just like a nice summer show that is like, well done. You can take it seriously, but it's not so serious. Right. I, that's what I'm hoping it is. And I, sign me up. Sounds great. I'll, I'll probably drink like a rosé with that one. Yeah. I'll probably drink like a red wine. <laughs> you know, like a Pinot Noir with the friends with college. Uh, but, you know. Um, so I, I, that's how I'm divvying these up, these new shows. Okay, so another one that just started but I haven't checked out is Still Starcross, which is from Shondaland. And it's uh, Romeo and Juliet, like set in Verona. Uh, but it actually is, af you know, you see Romeo and Juliet, they die, and then this is the aftermath afterwards between the two families. And it's super diverse, it looks fun, um, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, and the final one is on Showtime coming up, which is I'm Dying Up Here, which is about stand-up comedians. Um, our good friend has been working on it, and um, I'm excited about it. Has um, stars uh, Ari Greener, who's great. So she hasn't done anything in a while. So Cool. I know nothing about any of these shows, but... You know. <laughs> I'm just excited looking at the, this is a lot of really different kinds of shows with female leads that are starting this summer and I just I just hope they're all good and successful. It's just nice to look at the list all together. Especially since the fall shows are all like white guys fighting crime again. So Right. So get we'll have the summer. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> For us. <laughs> So we want to know what you guys are looking forward to and what you want us to talk about because we're going to be watching these shows and maybe talking about some of them on an upcoming podcast. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Um, we look forward to hearing from you on Twitter or Facebook about which summer shows you're watching. And until then, keep fighting crime and looking hot while doing it. <laughs>